Around the back. Hi. Hello. And welcome to Kraken's cabin. I hope you don't mind if we sit here on the porch today. The waves are gentle with the coming sunsets and the fresh air will do me some good. As you can hear in my voice, my friend, I've caught a bit of a cold. Nothing that some rest and relaxation won't fix, I'm sure. However, I didn't want to miss the opportunity to share some developments with you this evening. While cleaning one of the bedrooms, I found this book in a drawer. As you know, all the books here are well categorised, shelved in the library by themes and emotions. Well, this book was in a bedside drawer, with a note sitting on top of it, and only a single word in my uncle's writing. Regret. I took the, the library, only to find there were no books under that emotion. Of course, there's books about regret, plenty of everything in here, but not a single one under that term. I don't know if he was considering a recategorization, or maybe he wanted it to belong somewhere differently. I'm not sure. But I thought this evening, while the birds are making their home in the trees nearby, I could share this with you. So, this is The Great Gatsby, by Zelda and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Chapter 1 In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. When you feel like criticising anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in the world haven't had the advantages that you've had. He didn't say any more, but we've always been unusually communicative in a reserved way, and I understood that he meant a great deal more than that. In consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, a habit that has opened up many curious natures to me, and also made me the victim of not a few veteran bores. The abnormal mind is quick to detect and attach itself to this quality when it appears in a normal person. And so, it came about that in college I was unjustly accused of being a politician, because I was privy to the secret griefs of wild, unknown men. Most of the confidences were unsought. Frequently, I have feigned sleep, preoccupation, or a hostile levity, when I realised by some unmistakable sign that an intimate revelation was quivering on the horizon. For the intimate revelations of young men, or at least the terms in which they express them, are usually plagiaristic and marred by obvious suppressions. Reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope. I'm still a little afraid of missing something if I forget that, as my father snobbishly suggested, and I snobbishly repeat. A sense of the fundamental decencies is parceled out unequally at birth. And, after boasting this way of my tolerance, I come to the admission that it has a limit. Conduct may be founded on the hard rock or the wet marshes, but after a certain point, I don't care what it's founded on. When I came back from the East last autumn, I felt that I wanted the world to be in uniform, and had a sort of moral attention forever. I wanted no more riotous excursions with privileged glimpses into the human heart. Only Gatsby, the man who gives his name to this book, was exempt from my reaction. Gatsby, who represented everything for which I have unaffected scorn. If personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures, then there's something gorgeous about him. Some heightened sensitivity to the promises of life, 
as if we were related to one of those intricate machines that register earthquakes 10,000 miles away. This responsiveness has nothing to do with that flabby impression ability, which is dignified under the name of the creative temperament. It was an extraordinary gift for hope. A romantic readiness such as I have never found in any other person, and which it is not likely I shall ever find again. Now, Gatsby turned out right in the end. It is what preyed upon Pat Gatsby. What foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. My family had been prominent, well-to-do people in this middle western city for three generations. The Caraways are something of a clan. And we have a tradition that we're descended from the Dukes of Butesh. The actual founder of my line was my grandfather's brother. He came here in 51 sent to substitute the Civil War, and started the wholesale hardware business that my father carries on today. I never saw this great uncle, but I'm supposed to look like him. A special reference to the rather hard-boiled painting that hangs in my father's office. I graduated from New Haven in 1915, just a quarter of a century after my father, when a little later I participated in that delayed Teutonic migration known as the Great War. I enjoyed the country raid so thoroughly that I came back restless. Instead of being the warm centre of the world, the Middle West now seemed like the ragged edge of the universe. So I decided to go east and learn the bond business. Everybody I knew was in the bond business, so I suppose it could support one more single man. All my aunts and uncles talked it over as if they were choosing a prep school for me, and finally said, why, yes, with very grave, hesitant faces father agreed to finance me for a year, and after various delays I came east, permanently, I thought, in the spring of 22. The practical thing was to find rooms in the city, but it was a warm season, when I'd just left a country of wide lawns and friendly trees. So when a young man at the office suggested that we take a house together in the community of town, it seemed like a great idea. He found the house, a weather-beaten cardboard bungalow at 80 a month. But at the last minute, the firm ordered him to Washington, and I went out to the country alone. Not a dog. At least I had him for a few days, until he ran away. And an old Dodge, and a Finnish woman, who made my bed and cooked breakfast and muttered Finnish wisdom to herself over the electric stove. It was lonely for a day or two, until one morning some man, who more recently arrived than I, stopped me on the road. How do you get to West Egg Village? He asked helplessly. I told him. And as I walked on, I was no longer lonely. I was a guide, pathfinder, an original settler. He had casually conferred on me the wisdom of the neighbourhood. And so, sunshine and the great bursts of leaves growing on the trees, just as things grow in fast movies, I had that familiar conviction that life was beginning over again with the summer. There was so much to read, for one thing, and so much fine health to be pulled down out of the young breath-giving eye. I brought a dozen volumes on banking and credit and investment securities, and they stood on my shelf in red and gold like new money from the mint, promising to unfold the shining secrets that only Midas and Morgan and Miss Ennis knew. And I had the high intention of reading many other books besides. 
I was rather literary in college. One year I wrote a series of very solemn and obvious editorials for the Ill Muse. Now I was going to bring back all such things into my life and become again that most limited of all specialists, the well-rounded man. This isn't just an epigram. Life is much more successfully looked at from a single window, after all. It was a matter of chance that I should have rented a house in one of the strangest communities in North America. It was on that slender, riotous island which extends itself due east of New York. And where they are, among other natural curiosities, two unusual formations of land. Twenty miles from the city, a pair of enormous eggs, identical in contour and separated only by a courtesy bay, jut out in the most domesticated body of salt water in the Western Hemisphere, the great wet barnyard of Long Island Sound. They're not perfect ovals, like the egg in the Columbus story. They're both crushed flat at the contact end. But their physical resemblance must be a source of perpetual wonder to the gulls that fly overhead. To the wingless, a more interesting phenomenon is their dissimilarity, in every particular, except shape and size. I lived at the West Egg, the, well, the less fashionable of the two. Well, this is a most superficial tag to express the bizarre and not a little sinister contrast between them. My house was at the very tip of the egg, only 50 yards from the sound, and squeezed between two huge places that rented for 12 or 15,000 a season. The one on my right was a colossal affair by any standard. It was a factual imitation of some Hotel de Ville in Normandy, with a tower on one side, spiking you under a thin beard of raw ivy, and a marble swimming pool, and more than 40 acres of lawn and garden. It was Gatsby's mansion. Or, rather, as I didn't know Mr. Gatsby, it was a mansion inhabited by a gentleman of that name. My own house was an eyesore, but it was a small eyesore, and had been overlooked. So I had a view of the water, partial view of my neighbour's lawn, and the consoling proximity of millionaires, all for $80 a month. Across the courtesy bay, the white palaces of the fashionable East Egg glittered along the water, and the history of the summer really begins on the evening I drove over there to have dinner with the Tom Buchanans. Daisy was my second cousin once removed, and I'd known Tom in college. And just after the war, I spent two days with him in Chicago. Her husband, among various physical accomplishments, had been one of the most powerful ends that ever played football at New Haven. A national figure in a way. One of those men who could reach such an acute limited excellence at 21 that everything afterwards savours of an anticlimax. His family was enormously wealthy. Even in college, his freedom with money was a matter for reproach. But now he'd left Chicago and come east in a fashion that rather took your breath away. For instance, he'd brought down a string of polo ponies from Lake Forest. It was hard to realise that a man in my own generation was really wealthy enough to do that. Why they came east, I don't know. They'd spent a year in France for no particular reason, and then drifted here and there unrestfully, wherever people played polo or were rich together. This was a permanent move, said Dizzy over the telephone, but I didn't believe it. I had no sight into Daisy's heart, but I felt the Tom would drift on forever seeking, a little wistfully, for the dramatic turbulence of some irrecoverable football game. And so it happened that on a warm, windy evening, I drove over to the East Egg to see the two old friends whom I scarcely knew at all. 
Our house was even more elaborate than I expected. A cheerful red and white Georgian colonial mansion overlooking the bay. The lawn started at the beach and ran towards the front door for a quarter of a mile, jumping over sundials and brick walks and burning gardens. Finally, when it reached the house drifting up the side in bright vines as though from the momentum of its run. The front was broken by a line of French windows, glowing now with the reflective gold and wide open to the warm windy afternoon. And Tom Buchanan in his riding clothes was standing with his legs apart on the front porch. He'd changed since his New Haven years. Now, he was a sturdy, straw-haired man of thirty, with a rather hard mouth and a supercilious manner. Two shining, arrogant eyes had been established dominance over his face and gave him the appearance of always leaning aggressively forward. Not even the effeminate swank of his riding clothes could hide the enormous power of that body. He seemed to fill those glistening boots until he strained the top lacing. You could see a great pack of muscles shifting when his shoulder moved under a thin coat. It was a body capable of enormous leverage. A cruel body. His speaking voice, a gruff, husky tenor, added to the impression of fractiousness he conveyed. There was a touch of the paternal contempt in it, even toward people he liked. And there were men at New Haven who hated his guts. Now, don't think my opinion on these matters is final, he seemed to say, just because I'm stronger and more of a man than you are. We are in the same senior society. And while we were never intimate, I always had the impression that he approved of me and wanted me to like him with some harsh, defiant wistfulness of his own. We talked for a few minutes on the sunny porch. I've got a nice place here, he said, his eyes flashing about restlessly. Turning me around by one arm, he moved a broad, flat hand along the front vista, including in its sweep a sunken Italian garden, a half-acre of deep, pungent roses, and a slumdose motorboat that bumped the tide offshore. It belonged to Domine, the oil man. He turned me around again, politely and abruptly. We'll go inside. We walked through a high hallway into the bright, rosy-coloured space, fragilely bound into the house by the French windows at either end. The windows were ajar and gleaming white against the fresh grass outside that seemed to grow a little way into the house. A breeze blew through the room, blew curtains in at one end and at the other like pale flags, twisting them up toward the frosted wedding cake at the ceiling, and then rippled over the wine-coloured rug, making a shadow on it as the wind does on the sea. The only complimentary stationary object in the room was an enormous couch in which two young women were buoyed up as though on an anchored balloon. They were both in white, and their dresses were rippling and fluttering, as if they had just been blown back in after a short flight around the house. I must have stood for a few moments listening to the whip and stab of the curtains, and the groan of the picture on the wall. Then there was a boom as Tom Buchanan shut the rear windows, and caught wind died out about the room and the curtains and the rugs, and the two young women ballooned slowly to the floor. The younger of the two was a stranger to me. She was extended full length at her end of the divan, completely motionless, and with her chin raised a little, as if she were balancing something on it which was quite likely to fall. When she saw me out of the corner of her eyes, she gave no hint of it. Indeed, I was almost surprised into the murmuring apology of her having disturbed her by coming in. 
The other girl, Daisy, made an attempt to rise. She leaned slightly forward with a conscientious expression. Then she laughed, an absurd, charming little laugh. And I laughed too and came forward into the room. I'm p- paralysed with happiness. She laughed again, as if she'd said something very witty, and held my hand for a moment, looking up into my face, promising that there was no one in the world she so much wanted to see. That was a way she had. She hinted and murmured that the surname of the balancing girl was Baker. I'd heard it said that Daisy's murmur was only to make it people lean towards her, an irrelevant criticism that made it no less charming. At any rate, Miss Baker's lips fluttered. She nodded at me almost imperceptibly, then quickly tipped her head back again. The object she was balancing had obviously tottered a little and gave her something of a fright. Again, a sort of apology arose to my lips. Almost any exhibition of complete self-sufficiency draws a stunned tribute from me. I looked back at my cousin, who began to ask me questions in her low, thrilling voice. It was the kind of voice that ear follows up and down, as if each speech was an arrangement of notes that'll never be played again. Her face was a sad and lovely with bright things in it. Bright eyes and a bright, passionate mouth. But there was an excitement in her voice that men who occurred for her found difficult to forget. A singing compulsion. A whisper to listen. A promise that she had done gay, exciting things just a little while since and that there were gay, exciting things hovering in the next hour. I told her how I'd stopped off in Chicago for a day, on my way east, and how a dozen people had sent their love through. Do they miss me? she cried ecstatically. The whole town is desolate. All the cars have left rear wheel painted black as a morning wreath, and there's a persistent wail all night along the North Shore. How gorgeous. Let's go back to tomorrow. Then she added irrelevantly, you ought to see the baby. I'd like to. She's asleep. She's three years old. Haven't you ever seen her? Never. Well, you ought to see her. She's... Tom Buchanan, who had been hovering restlessly about the room, stopped and rested his hand at my shoulder. What are you doing, Nick? I'm a bond man. Who is? I told him. Never heard of them, he remarked decisively. This annoyed me. You will, I answered shortly. You will if you stay in the East. Oh, I'll stay in the East, don't you worry, he said, glancing at Daisy and then back at me, as if he were alert for something more. I'd be a goddamn fool to live anywhere else. At this point, Miss Baker said, absolutely, with such suddenness that I started. It was the first word she'd uttered since I came into the room. Evidently, it surprised her as much as it did me, for she yawned and, with a series of rapid, deft movements, stood up into the room. I'm stiff, she complained. I've been lying on that sofa for as long as I can remember. Don't look at me, Dizzy retorted. I've been trying to get you to New York all afternoon. No. Thanks, said Miss Baker, to the four cocktails just in from the pantry. I'm absolutely in training. Her host looked at her incredulously. You are. He took down his drink as if it were a drop in the bottom of a glass. How you ever get anything done is beyond me. I looked at Miss Baker, wondering what it was that she got done. I enjoyed looking at her. She was a slender, small-breasted girl, 
with an erect carriage, which she accentuated by throwing her body backward at the shoulders like a young cadet. Her grey, sun-streamed eyes looked back at me with polite, reciprocal curiosity out of a wan, charming, discontented face. It occurred to me now that I had seen her, or a picture of her, somewhere before. You live in West Egg, she remarked contemptuously. I know somebody there. I don't know a single... You must know Gatsby. Gatsby? demanded Daisy. What Gatsby? Before I could reply that he was my neighbour, dinner was announced. Wedging his tense arm imperatively under mine, Tom Buchanan compelled me from the room, as though he were moving a checker to another square. Slenderly, languidly, their hands set lightly on their hips, the two young women proceeded aside to a rosy-coloured porch, open toward the sunset, where four candles flickered on the table in the diminished wind. Candles, objected Daisy, frowning. She snapped them out with her fingers. In two weeks it will be the longest day of the year. She looked at us all radiantly. Do you always watch for the longest day of the year and then miss it? I always watch for the longest day in the year and then miss it. We ought to plan something, yawned Miss Baker, sitting down at the table as if she were getting into bed. All right, said Daisy. What'll we plan? She turned to me helplessly. What do people plan? Before I could answer, her eyes fastened with an odd expression on her little finger. Look, she complained, I heard it. We all looked. The knuckle was black and blue. You did it, Tom, she said accusingly. I know you didn't mean to, but you did do it. That's what I get from marrying a brood of a man. A great, big, hulking, physical specimen of a... I hate that word, hulking, objected Tom crossly. Even kidding. Hulking, insisted Daisy. Sometimes she and Miss Baker talked at once. Unobtrusively and with bantering and consequence, there was never quite chatter. That was as cool as their white dress and their impersonal eyes in the absence of all desire. They were here, and they accepted Tom and me, making only a polite, pleasant effort to entertain or to be entertained. They knew that presently dinner would be over, and a little later the evening too would be over, and casually put away. It was sharply different from the West, where an evening was hurried from phase to phase towards its close, and a continually disappointed anticipation or else in sheer nervous dread of the moment itself. You make me feel uncivilised, Daisy, I confessed in my second glass of corky but rather impressive claret. Can't you talk about crops or something? I meant nothing in particular by this remark, but it was taken up in an unexpected way. Civilization's going to pieces, broke out Tom violently. I've gotten to be a terrible pessimist about these things. Have you read The Rise of the Coloured Empires by this man, Goddard? Why, no, I answered, rather surprised by his tone. Well, it's a fine book, and everybody ought to read it. The idea is if we don't look out for the white race, the white race will be utterly submerged. It's all scientific stuff, it's all been proved. Tom's getting very profound, said Daisy, with an expression of unthoughtful sadness. He reads deep books with the long words in them. Was that word we... Well, these books are all scientific, insisted Tom, glancing at her impatiently. This fellow has worked out the whole thing. It's up to us, who are the dominant race, 
to watch out or these other races will have the control of things. We've got to beat them down, whispered Daisy, winking ferociously towards the fervent sun. You ought to live in California, began Miss Baker, but Tom interrupted her by shifting heavily in his chair. The idea is that we're Nordics. I am, and you are, and you are, and... After an infinitesimal hesitation, he included Daisy with a slight nod. She winked at me again. And we've produced all the things that go to make civilization. Oh, science and art and all that. Don't you see? There was something pathetic in his concentration. That is complacency. More acute than of old. That was not enough to him anymore. When, almost immediately, the telephone rang inside. The butler left the porch. Daisy seized upon the momentary interruption and leaned towards me. I'll tell you a family secret, she whispered enthusiastically. It's about the butler's nose. Do you want to hear about the butler's nose? Well, that's why I came over tonight. Well, he wasn't always a butler. He used to be the silver polisher for some people in New York that had a silver service for 200 people. He had to polish it from morning till night until finally it began to affect his nose. Things went from bad to worse, suggested Miss Baker. Yes, things went from bad to worse, until finally he had to give up his position. For a moment, the last sunshine fell with a romantic affection upon her glowing face. Her voice compelled me forward breathlessly as I listened. And the glow faded, each light deserting her with lingering regret, like children leaving a pleasant street at dusk. The butler came back and muttered something close to Tom's ear, whereupon Tom frowned, pushed back his chair, and without a word went back inside. As if his absence quickened something within it, Daisy leaned forward again, her voice glowing and singing. I'd love to see you at my table, Nick. You remind me of a... of a rose. Of an absolute rose. Doesn't he? She turned to Miss Baker for confirmation. An absolute rose. This was untrue. I'm not even faintly like a rose. She was only extemporizing. But a stirring warmth flowed from her, as if her heart was trying to come out to you, concealed in one of those breathless, thrilling words. Then suddenly she threw her napkin on the table and excused herself and went into the house. Miss Baker and I exchanged a short glance, consciously devoid of meaning. I was about to speak, but she sat up alertly and said, shh, in a warning voice. A subdued, impassioned murmur was audible in the room beyond, and Miss Baker leaned forward unashamed, trying to hear. The murmur trembled on the verge of coherence, sank down, mounted excitedly, and then ceased altogether. This Gatsby, you speak of, is my neighbour, I began. Don't talk. I want to hear what happens. Is something happening? I inquired innocently. You mean to say you don't know, said Miss Baker. Honestly surprised. I thought everybody knew. I don't. Why? She said hesitantly. Tom's got some woman in New York. Got some woman? I repeated blankly. Miss Baker nodded. She might have the decency not to telephone him at dinner time, don't you think? Almost before I grasped her meaning, there was the flutter of a dress and the crunch of leather boots, and Tom and Daisy were back at the table. It couldn't be helped, cried Daisy, with tense gaiety. She sat down, gone searchingly at Miss Baker, and then at me, and continued. I looked outdoors for a minute, 
And it's very romantic outdoors. There's a bird on the lawn that I think must be a nightingale come over on the cunyard or the white starlight. He's singing away. Her voice sang. It's romantic, isn't it, Tom? Very romantic, he said. And then miserably to me. If it's light enough after dinner, I want to take you down to the stables. The telephone rang again, startlingly. And as Daisy shook her head decisively at Tom and the subject of the stables, in fact, all subjects, vanished into the air. Among the broken fragments of the last five minutes at the table, I remember candles being lit again, pointlessly, and I was conscious of wanting to look squarely at everyone, and yet to avoid all lies. I couldn't guess what Daisy and Tom were thinking, but I doubt even if Miss Baker, who seemed to have mastered a certain hearty scepticism, was able to utterly put this fifth guest's shrill metallic urgency out of mind. To a certain temperament, the situation might have seemed intriguing. My own instinct was to telephone immediately for the police. The horses, needless to say, were not mentioned again. Tom and Miss Baker, with several feet of twilight between them, strolled back into the library, as if to vigil beside a perfectly tangible body, while, trying to look pleasantly interested in a little death, I followed Daisy around a chain of connecting verandas to the porch in front. In its deep gloom, we sat down side by side on the wicker settee. Daisy took her face in her hands as if feeling its lovely shape, and her eyes moved gradually out into the velvet dusk. I saw the turbulent emotions possessed her, so I asked what I thought would be some sedative questions about her little girl. We don't know each other very well, Nick, she said suddenly, even if we are cousins. You didn't come to my wedding. I wasn't back from the war. That's true, she hesitated. Well, I've had a very bad time, and I'm pretty cynical about everything. Evidently, she had reason to be. I waited, but she didn't say any more, and after a subject I returned rather feebly to the subject of her daughter. I suppose she talks and eats and everything. Oh, yes, she looks at me, absolutely. Listen, Nick, let me tell you what I said when she was born. Would you like to hear? Very much. It'll show you how I feel about things. Well, she was less than an hour old, and Tom was God knows where. I woke up out of the ether with an utterly abandoned feeling, and asked the girls right away if it was a boy or a girl. She told me it was a girl, and so I turned my head away and I wept. All right, I said. I'm glad it's a girl, and I hope she'll be a fool. It's the best thing a girl can be in this world. A beautiful little fool. You see, I think everything's terrible anyhow, she went on, in a convinced way. Everybody thinks so. The most advanced people. And I know. I've been everywhere and I've seen everything and I've done everything. Her eyes flashed around her in a defiant way, rather like Tom's. And she laughed with a thrilling scorn. Sophisticated. God, I'm sophisticated. The instant her voice broke off, ceasing to compel my attention, my belief, I felt the basic insincerity of what she had said. It made me uneasy, as though the whole evening had been a trick of some sort to extract a contributory emotion from me. I waited, and sure enough, in a moment she looked at me with an absolute smirk on her lovely face, as if she had asserted her membership in a rather distinguished secret society to which she and Tom belonged.
Inside, the crimson room was bloomed with light. Tom and Miss Baker sat on either end of the long couch as she read aloud to him from the Saturday evening post. The words, murmurous and uninflected, running together in a soothing tone. The lamplight, bright on his boots and dull on the autumn leaf yellow of her hair, glinted along the paper as she turned a page with a flutter of slender muscles in her arms. When she came in, she held us for a moment with a lifted hand. To be continued, she said, tossing the magazine to the table, in our very next issue. Her body asserted itself with a restless movement of her knee, and she stood up. Ten o'clock, she remarked, apparently finding the time on the ceiling. Time for this good girl to go to bed. Jordan's going to play in the tournament tomorrow, explained Daisy, over at Westchester. Oh, you're Jordan Baker. I know now why her face was familiar. Its pleasing, contemptuous expression had looked out at me from many recruiter pictures of the sporting life at Asheville and Hot Springs and Palm Beach. I'd heard some of her story too. A critical, unpleasant story. But what it was, I'd forgotten long ago. Good night, she said softly. Wake me at eight, won't you? If you'll get up. I will. Good night, Mr. Carraway. See you now. Of course you will, confirmed Daisy. In fact, I think I'll arrange a marriage. Come over often, Nick, and I'll sort of, oh, fling you two together. You know, lock you up accidentally in linen closets and push you out to sea in a boat and all that sort of thing. Good night, called Miss Baker from the stairs. I haven't heard a word. She's a nice girl, said Tom after a moment. They oughtn't let her run around the country in this way. Who oughtn't to? inquired Daisy coldly. Her family. Her family is one aunt who's a thousand years old. Besides, Nick's going to look after her, aren't you, Nick? She's going to spend lots of weekends out here this summer. I think the whole influence will be very good for her. But Daisy and Tom looked at each other for a moment in silence. Is she from New York? I asked quickly. From Louisville. Our white girlhood was passed together there. Our beautiful white... Did you give Nick a little heart-to-heart talk on the veranda? Demanded Tom suddenly. Did I? She looked at me. I can't seem to remember. But I think we talked about the Nordic race. Yes, I'm sure we did. It sort of crept up on us and the first thing you know... Don't believe everything you hear, Nick. He advised me. I said lightly that I hadn't heard anything at all. And after a few moments, I got up to go home. Then came to the door with me and they stood side by side in a cheerful square of light. As I started my motor, Daisy terribly called, Wait! I forgot to ask you something, and it's important. We heard that you were engaged to a girl out west. That's right, corroborated Tom kindly. We heard that you were engaged. It's a libel. I'm too poor. But we heard it, insisted Daisy, surprising me by opening up again in a flower-like way. We heard it from three people, so it must be true. Of course, I knew what they were referring to, but I wasn't even vaguely engaged. The fact that Gossip had published the bands was sort of the reason I had come east. You can't stop going with an old friend on account of rumours, and on the other hand, I had no intention of being rumoured into marriage. But their interest rather touched me and made them less remotely rich. Nevertheless, I was confused and a little disgusted as I drove away. It seemed to me that the thing for Daisy was to do was to rush out of the house, child in arms, 
but apparently there were no such intentions in her head. As for Tom, the fact that he had some woman in New York was really less surprising than he had been depressed by a book. Something was making him nibble at the edge of stale ideas, as if his sturdy, physical egotism no longer nourished his betemperate heart. Already it was deep summer on the roadhouse roofs and in front of the wayside garages where new red petrol pumps sat out in pools of light. And when I reached my estate at West Egg, I ran the car under its shed and sat for a while on an abandoned grass roller in the yard. The wind had blown off, even a loud, bright night, with wings beating in the trees and a persistent organ sound as the full bellows of the earth blew frogs full of life. The silhouette of a moving cat wavered across the moonlight, and turning my head to watch it, I saw that I was not alone. Fifty feet away, a figure had emerged from the shadow of my neighbour's mansion and was standing with his hands in his pockets regarding the silver pepper of the stars. Something in his leisurely movements and the secure position of his feet upon the lawn suggested that it was Mr Gatsby himself, come out to determine what share was his of our local heavens. I decided to call Tim. Miss Baker hadn't mentioned him at dinner, but that would do for an introduction. But I didn't call Tim or he gave it a sudden imitation that he was content to be alone. He stood out his arms towards the dark water in a curious way, and far as I was from him, I could have sworn he was trembling. Involuntarily, I glanced seaward, and distinguished nothing except a single green light, minute and far away, that might have been at the end of a dock. When I looked once more for Gatsby, he had vanished, and I was alone again in the unquiet darkness. Chapter 2 But halfway between the West Egg and New York, the motor road hastily joins the railroad and runs beside it for a quarter of a mile, so as to shrink away from a certain desolate area of land. This is a valley of ashes, a fantastic farm where ashes grow like wheat, under ridges and hills and grotesque gardens, where ashes take the forms of houses and chimneys and rising smoke, and finally, with a transcendent effort, of ash-grey men, who moved dimly and already crumbling through the powdery air. Occasionally, a line of grey cars crawls along an invisible track, gives out a ghastly creak, and comes to rest, and immediately the ash-grey men swarm up with leaden speeds and stir up an impenetrable cloud, which screens their obscure operations from your sight. But above the grey land, and the spasms of bleak dust which drift endlessly over it, you perceive, after a moment, the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. The eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg are blue and gigantic. Their retinas are one yard high. They look out of no face, but instead from a pair of enormous yellow spectacles which pass over a non-existent nose. Evidently some wild hag of an occultist set them there, the fatness practice in the borough of Queens, and then sank down himself into eternal blindness or forgot them and moved away. But his eyes, dinned a little by many paintless days, under the sun and the rain, brewed on over the solemn dumping ground. The Valley of Ashes is bound on one side by a small, foul river, and when the drawbridge is up to let barges through, the passengers on waiting trains can stare at the dismal scene for as long as half an hour. There is always a halt there, of at least a minute, and it was because of this 
I first met Tom Buchanan's mistress. The fact that he had one was insisted upon wherever he was known. His acquaintances resented the fact that he turned up in popular cafes with her, leaving her at a table, sauntered about, chatting with whomever he knew. Though I was curious to see her, I had no desire to meet her. But I did. I went up to New York with Tom on the train one afternoon. When we stopped by the ash heaps, he jumped to his feet and, taking hold of my elbow, literally forced me from the car. We're getting off, he insisted. I want you to meet my girl. I think he'd tanked up a good deal at luncheon, and his determination to have my company bordered on violence. The supercilious assumption was that on Sunday afternoon, I had nothing better to do. I followed him over a low, whitewashed rail fence, and we walked back a hundred yards along the road under Dr. Eckelbert's persistent stare. The only building in sight was a small block of yellow brick sitting on the edge of the wasteland, a sort of compact main street ministering to it, and contiguous to absolutely nothing. One of the three shops it contained for rent, another was an all-night restaurant, approached by a trail of ashes, and the third was a garage, repairs. George B. Wilson, cars bought and sold, and I followed Tom inside. The interior was unprosperous and bare. The only car visible was a dust-covered wreck of a Ford, which crouched in a dim corner. It occurred to me that the shadow of a garage must have a blind, and that sumptuous and romantic apartments were concealed overhead. When the proprietor himself appeared in the door of the office, wiping his hands on a piece of waste. He was a blonde, spiritless man, anemic and faintly handsome. When he saw us, a deep gleam of hope sprang into his light blue eyes. Hello, Wilson, old man, said Tom, slapping him jovially on the shoulder. How's business? I can't complain, answered Wilson unconvincingly. When are you going to sell me that car? Next week. I've got my man working on it now. Works pretty slow, don't he? No, he doesn't, said Tom coldly. If you feel that way about it, maybe I'd better sell it somewhere else after all. I, I didn't mean it, explained Wilson quickly. I just meant... His voice faded off. Tom glanced impatiently around the garage. Then I heard footsteps on the stairs, and in a moment the thickish figure of a woman blocked out the light from the office door. She was in the middle thirties, and faintly stout, but she carried her flesh sensuously as some women can. Her face, above a spotted dress of dark blue crept cream, contained no facet or gleam of beauty, but there was an immediately perceptible vitality about her as if the nerves of her body were continually smouldering. She smiled, slowly, and walking through her husband as if he were a ghost, shook hands with Tom, looking him flush in the eye. Then she wet her lips, and without turning around, spoke to her husband in a soft, coarse voice. Get some chairs, why don't you? So somebody can sit down. Oh, sure, agreed Wilson, hurriedly, and went towards the little office, mingling immediately with the cement colour of the walls. A white ashen dust veiled his dark suit, and his pale hair as if it veiled everything in the vicinity, except his wife, who moved close to Tom. I want to see you, said Tom intently. Get on the next train. All right. I'll meet you by the newsstand on the lower level. She nodded, and moved away from him just as George Wilson emerged with two chairs from his office door. 
we waited for her down the road and out of sight. It was a few days before the 4th of July, and a grey, scrawny Italian child was selling torpedoes in a row along the railroad track. Terrible place, isn't it? said Tom, exchanging a frown with Dr. Eckelberg. Awful. It does her good to get away. Doesn't her husband object? Wilson? He thinks she goes to see her sister in New York. He's so dumb he doesn't know he's alive. So, Tom Buchanan and his girl and I went up together to New York. Or not quite together, for Mrs. Wilson sat discreetly in another car. Tom deferred that much to the sensibility of those East Eggers who might be on the train. She changed her dress to a brown-figured muslin, which stretched tight over rather wide hips as Tom helped her to the platform in New York. At the newsstand, she bought a copy of the town tattle and a moving picture magazine. And in the station drugstore, some cold cream and a small flask of perfume. Upstairs, in the solemn echoing drive, she let her four taxi cabs drive away before she selected a new one. Lavender coloured, with a grey upholstery. And in this, we slid out from the mass of the station into the glowing sunshine. But immediately... She turned sharply from the window and, leaning forward, tapped on the front glass. I want to get one of those dogs, she said earnestly. I want to get one for the apartment. They're nice to have, a dog. We backed up to a grey old man who bore an absurd resemblance to John D. Rockefeller. In a basket swung from his neck, cowered a dozen very recent puppies of an undeterminate breed. What kind are they? asked Mrs. Wilson eagerly, as he came to the taxi window. All kinds. What kind do you want, lady? I'd like to get one of those police dogs. I don't suppose you've got that kind. The man peered doubtfully into the basket, plunged in his hand, and drew one up, wriggling by the back of the neck. That's no police dog, said Tom. No, it's not exactly a police dog, said the man with disappointment in his voice. It's more of an Airedale. He passed his hand over the brown wash rag of the back. Look at that coat. Same coat. That's a dog that'll never bother you with catching cold. I think it's cute, said Mrs. Wilson enthusiastically. How much is it? That dog? He looked at it admiringly. That dog will cost you ten dollars. The Airedale? Undoubtedly there was an Airedale contained in it somewhere, though its feet were startlingly white. Chains hands and settled down into Mrs. Wilson's lap, where she fondled the weatherproof coat with rapture. Is it a boy or a girl? She asked delicately. That dog? That dog's a boy. It's a bitch, said Tom decisively. Here's your money. Go and buy ten more dogs with it. We drove over to Fifth Avenue. Warm and soft, almost pastoral. On the summer, Sunday afternoon. I wouldn't have been surprised to see a great flock of white sheep turn the corner. Hold on, I said. I have to leave you here. No, you don't, interposed Tom quickly. Myrtle will be hurt if you don't come up to the apartment. Will you, Myrtle? Come on, she urged. I'll telephone my sister, Catherine. She's said to be very beautiful by people you ought to know. Well, I'd like to, but... We went on, cutting back again over the park towards the West Hundreds. At 158th Street, the cab stopped at one slice in a long white cake of apartment houses. Throwing a regal homecoming glance around the neighbourhood, Mrs. Wilson gathered up her dog and her other purchases and went haughtily in. I'm going to have the McKees come up, 
she announced as we rose in the elevator. And of course, I've got to call up my sister too. The apartment was on the top floor. A small living room, a small dining room, a small bedroom and a bath. The living room was crowded to the doors with a set of tapestried furniture entirely too large for it. So that the move about was to stumble continuously over scenes of ladies swinging in the gardens of Versailles. The only picture was an over a large photograph, apparently a hen sitting on a blurred rock. Looked at from a distance, however, the hen resolved itself to a bonnet, on the countenance of a stout old lady being down into the room. Several old copies of the town table lay on the table together with a copy of Simon Cold Peter, and some of the small scandal magazines of Broadway. Mrs. Wilson was first concerned with the dog. A reluctant elevator boy went for a box full of straw and some milk, to which he added on his own initiative a tin of large, hard dog biscuits, one of which decomposed empathetically into a saucer of milk all afternoon. Meanwhile, Tom brought out the bottle of whiskey from a locked bureau door. I'd been drunk just twice in my life, and the second time was that afternoon, so everything that happened has a dim, hazy cast over it, although until after eight o'clock the apartment was full of cheerful sun. Sitting on Tom's lap, Mrs. Wilson called up several people on the telephone. Then there were no cigarettes, and I went out to buy some at the drugstore in corner. When I came back, they had both disappeared, so I sat down discreetly in the living room and read a chapter of Simon called Peter. Either it was terrible stuff, or the whiskey distorted things, because it just didn't make any sense to. Just as Tom and Myrtle, after the first drink Mrs. Wilson and I called each other by our first names, reappeared, company commenced to arrive at the apartment door. The sister, Catherine, was a slender, worldly girl of about thirty, with a solid, sticky bob of red hair, and a complexion of powdered, milky white. Her eyebrows had been plucked and then drawn on again, at a more rakish angle, but the efforts of nature towards the restoration of the old alignment give a blurred arrow to her face. When she moved about, there was an incessant clicking as her innumerable pottery banglets jingled up and down her arms. She came in with such a propriety haste and looked about so possessively at the furniture that I wondered if she lived there. And when I asked her, she laughed immoderately, repeated my question aloud, and told me she lived with a girlfriend at a hotel. Mr. McKee was a pale, feminine man from the flat below. He had just shaved, for there was a white spot of lather on his cheekbone, and he was the most respectful in his greeting to everyone in the room. He informed me that he was in the artistic team, and I gathered later that he was a photographer, and had made the dim enlargement of Mrs. Wilson's mother, which hovered like an ectoplasm on the wall. His wife was a shrill, languid, handsome and horrible. She told me with pride that her husband had photographed her 127 times since they'd been married. Mrs. Wilson had changed her costume some time before, and was now attired in an elaborate afternoon dress of cream-coloured chiffon, which gave out a continual rustle as she swept about the room. With the influence of the dress, her personality had also undergone a change. The intense vitality that had been so remarkable in the garage was converted into impressive hauteur. Her laughter, her gestures, her assertions became more violently affected moment by moment, and as she expanded the room grew smaller around her, until she seemed to be revolving on a noisy, creaking pivot through the smoky air. My dear, she told her sister, in a high, menacing shout, most of these fellows will cheat on you every time. 
All they think of it is money. I have a woman up here last week to look at my feet, and when she gave me the bill, you'd have thought she'd had my appendicitis out. What was the name of the woman? asked Mrs. McKee. Mrs. Earhart. She goes around looking at people's feet in their own homes. I like your dress, remarked Mrs. McKee. I think it's adorable. Mrs. Wilson rejected the compliment by raising her eyebrow in disdain. It's just a crazy old thing, she said. I just slip it on sometimes so that I don't care what I look like. But it looks wonderful on you, if you know what I mean, pursued Mrs. McKee. If Chester could only get you in that pose, I think you could make something of it. We all looked in silence at Mrs. Wilson, who removed a strand of hair from over her eyes and looked back at us with a brilliant smile. Mr. McKee regarded her intently with his head on one side and then moved his hand back and forth slowly in front of his face. I should change the light, he said after a moment. I'd like to bring out the modelling of the features and I'd try to get hold of all of the back hair. I wouldn't think of changing the light, cried Mrs. McKee. I think it's... Her husband said, shh. And we all looked at the subject again. Whereupon Tom Buchanan yawned audibly and got to his feet. You McKees have something to drink, he said. Get some more ice and mineral water, Myrtle, before everybody goes to sleep. I told that boy about the ice. Myrtle raised her eyebrows in despair at the shiftlessness of the lower orders. These people. You have to keep after them all the time. She looked at me and laughed pointlessly. Then she flounced over to the dog, kissed it with ecstasy, and swept up into the kitchen, implying that a dozen chefs have waited her orders there. I've done some nice things out in Long Island, inserted Mr. Mickey. Tom looked at him blankly. Two of them we have framed downstairs. Two what? demanded Tom. Two studies. One of them I call Montauk Point, the gulls. And the other I call Montauk Point, the sea. The sister Catherine sat down beside me on the couch. Do you live down on Long Island too? she inquired. I live at West Egg. Really? I was down there at a party about a month ago. At a man named Gatsby's. Do you know him? I live next door to him. Well, they say he's a nephew or a cousin of Kaiser Wilhelm's. That's where all his money comes from. Really? She nodded. I'm scared of him. I'd hate to have him get anything on me. This absorbing information about my neighbour was interrupted by Mrs. McKee's pointing suddenly at Catherine. Chester, I think you should do something with her. She broke out. But Mr. McKee only nodded in a bored way and turned his attention to Tom. I'd like to do more work on Long Island, if I could get the entry. All I ask is that they should give me a start. Ask Myrtle, said Tom, breaking into a short shout of laughter as Mrs. Wilson entered with the tray. She'll give you a letter of introduction, won't you, Myrtle? Do what? she asked, startled. You'll give Mr. McKee a letter of introduction to your husband, so we can do some studies of him. His lips moved silently for a moment as he invented. George B. Wilson at the gasoline pump or something like that. Catherine leaned close to me and whispered in my ear. Neither of them can stand the person they're married to. Can't they? Can't stand them. She looked at Myrtle and then at Tom. What I say is, why go on living with them if they can't stand them? If I was them, I'd get a divorce and get married to each other right away. Doesn't she like Wilson either? The answer to this was unexpected. It came from Myrtle, who had overheard the question, and it was violent and obscene. You see? 
cried Catherine triumphantly. She lowered her voice again. It's really his wife that's keeping them apart. She's a Catholic and they don't believe in divorce. Daisy was not a Catholic and I was a little shocked at the elaborateness of the lie. When they do get married, continued Catherine, they're going west to live for a while until it all blows over. It'd be more discreet to go to Europe. Oh, do you like Europe? She exclaimed surprisingly. I just got back from Monte Carlo. Really? Just last year. I went over there with another girl. Did you stay long? No. We went to Monte Carlo and then came back. We went by way of Marseille. We had over $1,200 when we started. But we got chipped out of it all in two days in the private rooms. What an awful time getting back, I can tell you. God, how I hated that time. The late afternoon sky bloomed into the window for a moment, like the blue honey of the Mediterranean. Then the shrill voice of Mrs. McKee called back into the room. I almost made a mistake too, she declared vigorously. I almost married the little tyke who'd been after me for years. Knew he was below me. Everybody kept saying to me, Lucille, that man's way below you. But if I hadn't met Chester, he'd have got me for sure. Yes, but listen, said Myrna Wilson, nodding her head up and down. At least you didn't marry him. I know I didn't. Well, I married him, said Myrtle, ambiguously. And that's the difference between your case and mine. Why did you, Myrtle? demanded Catherine. Nobody forced you to. Myrtle considered. I married him because I thought he was a gentleman, she said finally. I thought he knew something about breeding, but he wasn't fit to lit my shoe. You were crazy about him for a while, said Catherine. Crazy about him? cried Myrtle incredulously. You said I was crazy about him. I never was any more crazy about him than I was about that man there. And she pointed suddenly at me, and everyone looked at me accusingly. I tried to show my expression that I expected no affection. The only crazy I was was when I married him. I knew right away I'd made a mistake. He borrowed somebody's best suit to get married in and never even told me about it. And the man came after it one day when he was out. Oh, is that your suit? I said. This is the first I've ever heard about it. But I gave it to him. And then I lay down and cried to beat the band all afternoon. She really ought to get away from him, resumed Catherine to me. He had been living over that garage for 11 years. And Tom's the first sweetie she ever had. A bottle of whiskey, the second one, was now in constant demand by all of the present. Excepting Catherine, who felt just as good or nothing at all. And Tom rang for the janitor and sent him for some celebrated sandwiches, which were a complete supper in themselves. I wanted to get out and walk eastward toward the park, towards the soft twilight, but each time I tried to go, I became entangled in some wild, strident argument which pulled me back, as if with ropes into my chair. Yet high over the city, our line of yellow windows must have contributed to their share of human secrecy to the casual watcher in the darkening streets. And I saw him too, looking up and wondering. I was within and without, simultaneously enchanted and repelled by the inexhaustible variety of life. Myrtle pulled her chair closer to mine, and suddenly her warm breath poured over me the story of her first meeting with Tom. I was on the two little seats facing each other that are always the last ones left on the train. I was going up to New York to see my sister and spend the night. He had on a dress suit and patent leather shoes, and I couldn't keep my eyes off him. But every time he looked at me, I had to pretend like I was looking at the advertisement over his head. 
When he came into the station, he was next to me, and his white shirt front pressed against my arm. So I told him I'd have to call the policeman, but he knew I lied. I was so excited that when I got into a taxi with him, I didn't hardly know I was getting into a subway train. All I kept thinking about over and over was, can't live forever, you can't live forever. She turned to Mrs. McKee, and the room rang full of her artificial laughter. My dear, she cried, I'm going to have to give you this dress as soon as I'm through with it. I've got to get another one tomorrow. I'm going to make a list of all the things I've got to get. A massage and a weave and a collar for the dog, and one of those cute little lash trays where you touch a spring, and a wreath with a little black silk bow for a mother's grave that last all summer. I've got to write down a list, so I don't forget the things I've got to do. It was nine o'clock, and almost immediately afterward I looked at my watch and found that it was ten. Mr. McKee was asleep in his chair with his fists clenched in his lap, like a photograph of a man of action. Taking out my handkerchief, I wiped from his cheek the spot of dried lather that had worried me all afternoon. The little dog was sitting on the table looking with blind eyes through the smoke, and from time to time groaning faintly. People disappeared, reappeared, made plans to go somewhere, and then lost each other, searched for each other, found each other a few feet away. Sometime toward midnight, Tom Buchanan and Mrs. Wilson stood face to face discussing, in impassioned voices, whether Mrs. Wilson had any right to mention Daisy's name. Daisy, 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 shouted Mrs. Wilson. I say it whenever I want to. Daisy, Daisy. With a short death movement, Tom Buchanan broke her nose with his open hand. Then there were bloody towels upon the bathroom floor, and women's voices scolding, and high over the confusion a long, broken wail of pain. Mr. McKee awoke from his doze and started in a daze towards the door. When he'd gone halfway, he turned round and stared at the scene, his wife and Catherine scolding and consoling as they stumbled here and there among the crowded furniture with articles of aid, and the despairing figure on the couch, bleeding fluently, and trying to spread a copy of the town title over the tapestry scenes of Versailles. Then Mr. McKee turned and continued on out the door. Taking my hat from the chandelier, I followed. Come to lunch someday, he suggested, as we groaned down in the elevator. Where? Anywhere. Keep your hands off the lever, snapped the elevator floor. I beg your pardon, said Mr. McKee with dignity. I didn't know I was touching it. All right, I agreed. I'll be glad to. I was standing beside his bed and he was sitting up between the sheets, clad in his underwear, the great portfolio in his hands. Beauty and the Beast loneliness, old grocery horse, broken bridge. And then I was lying half asleep in the cold lower level of Pennsylvania Station, staring at the morning tribune and waiting for the four o'clock train. Chapter 3 There was music from my neighbour's house through the summer nights. In his blue gardens men and girls came and went like moths among the whisperings and the champagne and the stars. At high tide in the afternoon, I watched his guests diving from the tower of his raft, or taking the sun on the hot sand of his beach, while his two motorboats slit the waters of the sand, drawing aquaplanes over the cataracts of foam. On weekends, his Rolls Royce became an omnibus, bearing parties to and from the city between nine in the morning and long past me, while his station wagon scampered like a brisk yellow bug to meet all of the trains. And on Mondays, eight servants, including an extra gardener, told all day with the mops and scrubbing brushes and hammers and garden shears, 
repairing the ravages of the night before. Every Friday, five crates of oranges and lemons arrive from a fruitier in New York. Every Monday, these same oranges and lemons left his back door in a pyramid of pulpless halves. There was a machine in the kitchen which could extract the juice of 200 oranges in half an hour if a little button was pressed 200 times by a butler's thumb. At least once a fortnight, a corps of kidders came down with several hundred feet of canvas and enough coloured lights to make a Christmas tree of Gatsby's enormous garden. On buffet tables garnished with the glistening hors d'oeuvres, spiced baked hams crowds against salads of harlequin designs and pastry pigs and turkeys bewitched into dark gold. In the main hall, a bar with a real brass reel was set up and stocked with gins and liquors and with cordials so long forgotten that most of his female guests were too young to know one from another. By seven o'clock, the orchestra had arrived. No thin five-piece affair, but a whole pitful of oboes and trombones and saxophones and viols and cornets and piccolos and low and high drums. The last swimmers have come in from the beach now and are dressing upstairs. The cars from New York are parked five deep in the drive and already the halls and salons and verandas are gaudy with primary colours and hair bobbed in strange new ways and shawls beyond the dreams of Castile. The bar's in full swing and floating rounds of cocktails permeate the garden outside until the air is alive with chatter and laughter and casual innuendo and introductions forgotten on the spot. Enthusiastic meetings between women who never knew each other's name. The lights grow brighter as the earth lurches away from the sun. Now the orchestra is playing yellow cocktail music, and the opera of voices pitches a key higher. Laughter is easier minute by minute, spilled with prodigality, tipped out on a cheerful word. The groups change more swiftly, swell with new arrivals, dissolve and form in the same breath. Already there are wanderers, confident girls who weave here and there among the strudier, more stable, and become for a sharp, joyous moment the centre of the group, and then excited with triumph, glide on through the sea change of faces and voices and colour under the constantly changing light. Suddenly, one of these gypsies, in trembling opal, seizes a cocktail out of the air, dumps it down for courage and moving her hands like a frisco, dances out alone onto the canvas platform. A momentary hush. The orchestra leader varies his rhythm obligingly for her. There is a burst of chatter as the erroneous news goes around that she is Gila Gray's understudy from the Follies. The parties begin. I believe on that first line I went to Gatsby's house. I was one of the few guests who had actually been invited. People were not invited. They went there. They got into automobiles, which bore them out to Long Island, and somehow they ended up at Gatsby's door. Once there, they were introduced by somebody who knew Gatsby, and after that they conducted themselves according to the rules of behaviour associated with an amusement park. Sometimes they came and went without having met Gatsby at all, came for the party with the simplicity of heart that was his own thicket of ambition. When became actually invited, a chauffeur in a uniform of a robin's egg blue crossed my lawn early that Saturday morning with a surprisingly formal note from his employer. The honour would be entirely Gatsby's, he said. If I would attend his little party that night. He had seen me several times and had intended to call on me long before. But a peculiar combination of circumstances had prevented it. Signed, J. Gatsby. 
in a majestic hand. Dressed up in white flannels, I went over to his lawn a little after seven and wandered around rather ill at ease among the swirls and eddies of people I didn't know. Though here and there there was a face I'd noticed on the commuting trains. I was immediately struck by the number of young Englishmen dotted about, all well-dressed, all looking a little hungry, all talking in low, earnest voices to solid and prosperous Americans. I was sure that they were selling something, bonds, insurance, or automobiles. They were at least agonizingly aware of the easy money in the vicinity and convinced that it was theirs for a few words in the right key. As soon as I arrived, I made an attempt to find my host. But the two or three people of whom I had asked his whereabouts stared at me in such an amazed way and denied so vehemently any knowledge of his movements that I slunk off in the direction of the cocktail table. The only place in the garden where a single man could linger without looking purposeless and alone. I was on my way to get roaring drunk from sheer embarrassment when Jordan Baker came out of the house stood at the head of the marble steps, looking a little backward and looking with contemptuous interest down into the garden. Welcome or not, I found it necessary to attach myself to someone before I should begin to address the cordial remarks of the passers-by. Hello, I roared, advancing towards her. My voice seemed unnaturally loud across the garden. I thought you might be here, she responded absently as I came up. I remembered you lived next door, so... She held my hand impersonally, as I promised that she'd take care of me in a minute, and gave ear to two girls in twin yellow dresses who stopped at the foot of the steps. Hello, they cried together. Sorry you didn't win. That was for the golf tournament. She had lost in the finals the week before. You don't know who we are, said one of the girls in yellow, but we met you here about a month ago. You've dyed your hair since then, remarked Jordan, and I started. But the girls had moved casually on and her remark was addressed to the premature mood, produced like the supper, no doubt, out of a caterer's basket. With Jordan's slender golden arm rested on mine, we descended the steps and sauntered about the garden. A tray of cocktails floated at us through the twilight, and we sat down at a table with the two girls in yellow and three men. Each one introduced us as Mr. Mumble. Do you come to these parties alone? inquired Jordan of the girl beside her. The last one was the one I met yet, answered the girl, in an alert, confident voice. She turned to her companion. Wasn't it for you too, Lucille? It was for Lucille too. I like to come, Lucille said. I never care what I do, so I always have a good time. When I was here last, I tore my gown on a chair, and he asked for my name and address. Inside of a week, I got a package from Croyers with a new evening gown in it. Did you keep it? asked Jordan. Sure it did. I'm going to wear it tonight, but it was too big in the bust and had to be altered. It was gas blue with lavender beads. $265. There's something funny about a fellow that'll do a thing like that, said the other girl eagerly. He didn't want any trouble with anybody. Who doesn't? I inquired. Gatsby. Someone told me. The two girls and Jordan leaned together confidently. Somebody told me they thought he killed a man once. A thrill passed over all of us, but three Mr. Mumbles bent forward and listened eagerly too. I don't think it's so much that, answered Lucille sceptically. It's more that he was a German spy during the war. One of the men nodded in confirmation. I heard that from a man who knew all about him. Grew up with him in Germany, he assured us positively. Oh no, said the girl. It couldn't be that, because he was in the American army during the war. 
Buzzer gradually switched back to her, she leaned forward with enthusiasm. You look at him sometimes when he thinks nobody's looking at him. Betty's killed a man. She narrowed her eyes and shivered. Lucille shivered. Will turned and looked around for Gatsby. It was testimony to the romantic speculation he inspired that there were whispers about him from those who had found little that it was necessary to whisper about in this world. The first supper, there would be another one after midnight, was now being served. Jordan invited me to join her own party. We were spread around the table on the other side of the garden. There were three married couples in Jordan's escort, a persistent undergraduate given the violent innuendo. And obviously under the impression that sooner or later Jordan was going to yield him up her person to a greater or lesser degree. Instead of rambling, this party had preserved a dignified homogeneity and assumed to itself the function of representing the stated nobility of the countryside. East Egg condescending to West Egg and carefully on guard against his spectrotropic gaiety. Let's get out, whispered Jordan, after a somehow wasteful and inappropriate half hour. This is much too polite for me. We got up, and she explained that we were going to go and find the host. I'd never met him, she said, and it was making me uneasy. The undergraduate nodded in the cynical, melancholy way. The bar, where we glanced first, was crowded, but Gatsby was not there. She couldn't find him on the top of the steps, and he wasn't on the veranda. On a chance, we tried an important-looking door, and walked into a high Gothic library, panelled with carved English oak, and probably transported complete from some ruin overseas. A stout, middle-aged man, with enormous owl-sized spectacles, was sitting somewhat drunk on the edge of a great table, staring with unsteady concentration at the shelves of books. As we entered, he wheeled excitedly around and examined Jordan from head to foot. What do you think? he demanded impetuously. About what? He waved his hand towards the bookshelves. About that. As a matter of fact, you needn't bother to ascertain. I ascertained. They're real. The books. He nodded. Absolutely real. Have pages and everything. I thought they might be a nice durable cardboard. Matter of fact, they're absolutely real. Pages and... Here, let me show you. Taking our scepticism for granted, he rushed towards the bookcases and returned with volume one of the studded lectures. See? He cried triumphantly. It's a bona fide piece of printed matter. It fooled me. That fellow's a regular basalo. It's a triumph. What thoroughness. What realism. Knew when to stop too. Didn't cut the pages. But what do you want? What do you expect? He snatched the book from me and replaced it hastily on the shelf, muttering that if one brick was removed, the whole library was liable to collapse. Who brought you? He demanded. Or did you just come? I was brought. Most people are brought. But Jordan looked at him alertly, cheerfully without answering. I was brought by a woman named Roosevelt, he continued. Mrs. Claude Roosevelt. Do you know her? I met her somewhere last night. I've been drunk for about a week now. I think it might sober me up a bit to sit in the library. Has it? A little bit, I think. I can't tell yet. I've only been here for an hour. Did I tell you about the books? They're real. They're... you told us. We shook hands with him gravely and went back outside. They were dancing now on the canvas in the garden. Old men pushing young girls backwards in eternal graceless circles. Superior couples holding each other tortuously, fashionably, 
and keeping in the corners. When a great number of single girls dancing individualistically are relieving the orchestra for a moment of the burden of the banjo or the traps. By midnight, the hilarity had increased. A celebrated tenor he had sung in Italian, a notorious Cotrallo had sung in jazz, and between the numbers people were doing stunts all over the garden, while happy, vacuous bursts of laughter rose toward the summer sky. Per stage twins, he turned out to be the girls in yellow, did a baby act in costume, and champagne was served in glasses bigger than finger balls. The moon had risen higher, and floating in the sun was a triangle of silver scales, trembling a little to the stiff, tinny drip of the banjos on the lawn. I was still with Jordan Baker. We were sitting at a table with a man about my age and a rowdy little girl who gave way upon the slightest provocation to uncontrollable laughter. I was enjoying myself. I'd taken two finger bowls of champagne, and the scene had changed before my eyes into something significant, elemental and profound. At a lull in the entertainment, the man looked at me and smiled. Your face is familiar, he said. Were you in the first division during the war? Why, yes. I was in the 20th Infantry. I was in the 16th, till June 1918. I knew I'd seen you about somewhere before. We talked for a moment about some of the wet, grey little villages in France. Evidently, he lived in this vicinity, for he told me that he had just brought a hydroplane and was going to try out in the morning. Come and go with me, old sport. Just near the shore, along the sand. What time? Any time that suits you best. It was on the tip of my tongue to ask his name when Jordan looked around and smiled. Having a gay time now? she inquired. Much better. I turned again to my new acquaintance. This isn't an unusual party for me. I haven't even seen the host. I live over there. I waved my hand at the invisible hedge in the distance. And this man Gatsby sent over his chauffeur with an invitation. For a moment he looked at me as if he failed to understand. I'm Gatsby, he said suddenly. What? exclaimed. Oh, I beg your pardon. I thought you knew old sport. I'm afraid I'm not a very good host. He smiled understandingly, much more than understandingly. It was one of those rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across four or five times in life. It faced, or seemed to face, the whole eternal world for an instant, and then concentrated on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favour. It understood that you just so far as you wanted to be understood, believed in you just as you would like to believe in yourself, and assured you that I had precisely the impression of you that, at your best, you hoped to convey. Precisely at that point it vanished, and I was looking at an elegant young roughneck, a year or two over thirty, whose elaborate formality of speech just missed being absurd. Sometime before he introduced himself, I'd got a strong impression that he was picking his words with car. Almost at the moment when Mr. Gatsby identified himself, a butler hurried towards him with the information that Chicago was calling on him on the wire. He excused himself with a small bye that included each of us in turn. If you want anything, just ask for it, old sport, he urged me. Now excuse me, I will rejoin you later. When he was gone, I turned immediately to Jordan, constrained to assure of my surprise. I'd expected that Mr. Gatsby would be a florid and corpulent person in his middle ears. Who is he? I demanded. Do you know? He's just a man named Gatsby. Where is he from, I mean? What does he do? Now you're started on the subject, 
she answered with a wan smile. Well, he told me once that he was an Oxford man. The dim background started to take shape behind him, but at her next remark it faded away. However, I don't believe it. Why not? I don't know, she insisted. I just don't think he went there. Something in her tone reminded me of the other girls. I think he killed a man, and had the effect of stimulating my curiosity. I would have accepted without question the information that Gatsby sprang from the swamps of Louisiana or from the Lower East Side of New York. That was comprehensible. But young men didn't, at least in my provincial and experience, I believe they didn't, drift coolly out of nowhere and buy a palace on Long Island Sound. Anyhow, he gives large parties, said Jordan, changing the subject with an urban distaste for the concrete. And I like large parties. They're so intimate. At small parties, there isn't any privacy. There is a boom of a bass drum, and the voice of an orchestra leader rung out suddenly above the echolalia of the garden. Ladies and gentlemen, he cried. At the request of Mr. Gatsby, I'm going to play for you Mr. Vladimir Tostov's latest work, which attracted so much attention at Carnegie Hall last May. If you read the papers, you know there was a big sensation. He smiled with jovial condensation and added, Some sensation, whereupon everybody laughed. This piece is known, he concluded lastly, as Vladimir Tostov's Jazz History of the World. The nature of Mr. Tostov's composition eluded me, because just as it began, my eyes fell on Gatsby, standing alone on the marble steps and looking from one group to the other with approving eyes. His tanned skin was drawn attractively tight on his face, and his short hair looked as though it were trimmed every day. We could see nothing sinister about him. I wondered if the fact that he had not been drinking helped to set him off to his guests, for it seemed to me that he grew more correct as the fraternal hilarity increased. When the jazz history of the world was over, girls were putting their heads on men's shoulders in a puppyish, convivial way. Girls were swinging backward playfully into men's arms, even into groups, knowing that someone would arrest their falls. But no one swooned backward on Gatsby, and no French bob touched Gatsby's shoulder. No singing quartets were formed with Gatsby's head for one link. I beg your pardon. Gatsby's butler was suddenly standing beside us. Miss Baker, he inquired. I beg your pardon, but Mr. Gatsby would like to speak to you alone. With me? she exclaimed in surprise. Yes, madam. She got up slowly, raising her eyebrows at me in astonishment, and followed the butler towards the house. I noticed that she wore her evening dress. All of her dresses like sports clothes. There was a jauntiness about her movements as if she had first learned to walk upon golf courses on clean, crisp mornings. I was alone and it was almost two. For some time, confused and intriguing sounds had issued from a long, many-windowed room which overhung the terrace. Alluding Jordan's undergraduate, who was now engaged in an obstetrical conversation with two chorus girls who had implored me to join him. I went inside. The large room was full of people. One of the girls in yellow was playing the piano and beside her stood a tall, red-haired young lady from a famous chorus, engaged in song. She had drunk a quality of champagne and had during the course sung the song she had decided, ineptly, that everything was very, very, very sad. She was not only singing, she was weeping too. 
Whenever there was a pause in the song, she filled it with the gasping, broken sobs, and then took up the lyric again in the quavering soprano. The tears coursed down her cheeks. Not freely, however, for when they came into contact with her heavily beaded eyelashes, they assumed an inky colour, and pursued the rest of their way in slow, black rivulets. A humorous suggestion was made that she sang the notes on her face, whereupon she threw up her hands, sank into a chair, and went off into a deep, venous sleep. She had a fight with a man who says he's her husband, explained the girl at my elbow. I looked around. Most of the remaining women were now having fights with men said to be their husbands. Even Jordan's party, the quartet from East Egg, were rent asunder by dissension. One of the men was talking with curious intensity to a young actress, and his wife, after attempting to laugh at the situation in a dignified and indifferent way, broke down entirely and reworked to flank attacks. At intervals, she appeared suddenly at his side like an angry diamond and hissed, You promised, in his ear. The reluctance to go home was not confined to wayward men. The hall was at present occupied by two deplorably sober men and their highly indignant wives. The wives were sympathising with each other in slightly raised voices. Whenever he sees that I'm having a good time, he wants to go home. I've never heard anything so selfish in my life. We're always the first to leave. So are we. Well, we're almost the last tonight, said one of the men sheepishly. The orchestra left half an hour ago. In spite of the wives' agreement that such malevolence was beyond credibility, the dispute ended in a short struggle, and both wives were lifted, kicking into the night. As I waited for my hat in the hall, the door of the great library opened, and Jordan Baker and Gatsby came out together. He was saying some last word to her, but the eagerness in his manner tightened abruptly into formality as several people approached him to say goodbye. Jordan's party was calling impatiently to her from the porch, but she lingered for a moment to shake hands. I've just heard the most amazing thing, she whispered. How long were we in there? Why, about an hour. It was simply amazing, she repeated abstractedly. But I swore I wouldn't tell it, and here I am tantalising you. She yawned gracefully in my face. Please, come and see me. The phone book. Under the name of Mrs Sigourney Howard, my aunt. She was hurrying off as she talked. Her brown hand waved the jaunty salute as she melted into her party at the door. Rather ashamed that on my first appearance I'd stayed so late, I joined the last of Gatsby's guests, who were clustered around him. I wanted to explain to him that I'd hunted for him early in the evening, and to apologise for not having known him in the garden. Don't mention it, he explained eagerly. Don't give it another thought, old sport. The familiar expression held no more familiarity than the hand which reassuringly brushed my shoulder. Don't forget, we're going up on the hydroplane tomorrow morning, at nine o'clock. Then, the butler behind his shoulder. Philadelphia wants on the phone, sir. Ah, all right. In a minute. Tell them I'll be right there. Good night. Good night. Good night. He smiled, and suddenly there seemed to be a pleasant significance in having been among the last to go, as if he desired it the entire time. Good night, old sport. Good night. But as I walked towards the steps, I saw that the evening was not quite over. Fifty feet from the door, a dozen headlights illuminated a bizarre and tumultuous scene. In the ditch, beside the road, right side up, but violently shorn of one wheel, rested a new coupe, which had left Gatsby's drive not two minutes before. 
the sharp jut of the wall accounted for the detachment of the wheel, which was now getting considerable attention from half a dozen curious chauffeurs. However, as they left their cars blocking the road, a harsh, discordant din from those in the rear had been audible for some time, and added to the already violent confusion of the scene. A man in a long duster had smudged from the wreck, and now stood in the middle of the road, looking from the car to the tyre, from the tyre to the observers, in a pleasant, puzzled way. See, he explained, it went in the ditch. The fact was infinitely astonishing to him, and I recognised first the unusual quality of wonder, and then the man. It was the late patron of Gatsby's library. How did it happen? He shrugged his shoulders. I know nothing whatsoever about mechanics, he said decisively. But how did it happen? Did you run into the wall? Don't ask me, said Allies, washing his hands of the whole matter. I know very little about driving. Next to nothing, actually. It happened, and that's all I know. Well, if you're a poor driver, you oughtn't to try driving at night. But I wasn't trying, he explained indignantly. I wasn't even trying. An odd hush fell upon the bystanders. Do you want to commit suicide? You're lucky it's just a wheel. A bad driver and not even trying. You don't understand, explained the criminal. I wasn't driving. There was another man in the car. The shock that followed this declaration found voice in a sustained, Ah! As the door of the coupe swung slowly open. The crowd, and it was now a crowd, stepped back involuntarily, and when the door had opened wide there was a ghostly pause. Then... Very gradually, part by part, pale, dangling individuals stepped out of the wreck, pawing tentatively at the ground with a large, uncertain, dancing shoe. Blinded by the glare of the headlights and confused by the incessant groaning of the horns, the apparition stood swaying for a moment before he perceived the man in the duster. What's the matter? he inquired and calmly. Did we run out of gas? Look! Half a dozen fingers pointed at the amputated wheel. He stared at it for a moment, and then looked upwards as though he suspected it had dropped from the sky. It came off, someone explained. He nodded. At first I didn't notice we'd stop. Pause. Then taking a long breath and straightening his shoulders, he remarked in a determined voice. Wonders will tell me where the nearest gas station is. At least a dozen men. Some of them a little better off than he was, explained to him that the wheel and the car were no longer joined by any physical bond. Back out, he suggested after a moment, put her in reverse. But the wheel's off. He hesitated. No harm in trying, he said. The caterwauling horns had reached a crescendo, and I turned away and cut across the lawn towards home. I glanced back once. A wafer of a moon was shining over Gatsby's house, making the night fine as before, and surviving the laughter and the sound of his still glowing garden. Sudden emptiness seemed to flow from the windows and the great doors, and down with complete isolation the figure of the host stood on the porch, his hand up in a formal gesture of farewell. Reading over what I've written so far, I see I have given the impression that the events of three nights, several weeks apart, were all out absorbed me. On the contrary, they were merely casual events in a crowded summer, and, until much later, they absorbed me infinitely less than my personal affairs. Most of the time I work, 
In the early evening, the sun threw my shadow westward as I hurried down the white chasms of lower New York towards the Batalby Trust. I knew the other clerks and young bond salesmen by their first names and lunched with them in dark, crowded restaurants on little pig sausages and mashed potatoes and coffee. I even had a short affair with a girl who lived in Jersey City and worked in the accounting department. But her brother began throwing mean looks in my direction, so when she went on vacation in July, I let it blow quietly away. I took dinner usually at the Yale Club. For some reason, it was the gloomiest event of my day. Then I went upstairs to the library and studied investments and securities for a conscientious hour. There were generally a few rioters around, but they never came into the library, so it was a good place to work. After that, if the night was mellow, I strolled down Madison Avenue past Old Murray Hill Hotel and over 33rd Street to the Pennsylvania Station. I began to like New York, the racy, adventurous feel of it at night, the satisfaction that the constant flicker of men and women and machines give to the restless eye. I like to walk up Fifth Avenue and point out romantic women from the crowd and imagine that in a few minutes I was going to enter into their lives and no one would ever know or disapprove. Sometimes in my mind, I followed them to their apartments on the corners of hidden streets, and they turned and smiled back at me before they faded through a door into warm darkness. At the enchanted metropolitan twilight, I felt a haunting loneliness sometimes, and felt it in others. Poor young clerks who loitered in the front of windows, waiting until it was time for a solitary restaurant dinner. Young clerks in the dusk, waiting the most poignant moments of night and life. Again, at eight o'clock, when the dark lanes of the forties were lined with five deep with throbbing taxicabs bound for the theatre district, I felt the sinking in my heart. Forms leaned together in the taxis as they waited, and voices sang, and there was laughter from unheard jokes, and lighted cigarettes made unintelligible circles inside. Imagine then that I, too, was hurrying towards gaiety and sharing their intimate excitements. I wished them well. For a while, I lost sight of Jordan B. And then in midsummer I found her again. At first I was flattered to go places with her because she was a golf champion and everyone knew her by name. Then it was something more. I wasn't actually in love, but I felt a certain tender curiosity. The bored, haughty face that she turned to the world concealed something. Most affectations conceal something eventually. Even though they don't in the beginning. And one day I found what it was. When we were at a house party together up in Warwick, she left a borrowed car out in the rain with the top down and then lied about it. And suddenly I remembered the story about her that eluded me that night at Daisy's. At first, a big gold tournament there was a row that there was nearly attached to the papers, a suggestion that she had moved her ball from a bad lie into the semi-final round. The thing approached proportions of a scandal and then died away. The caddy retracted his statement and the only other witness admitted that he might have been mistaken. The incident and the name had remained together in my mind. Jordan Baker instinctively avoided clever, assured men. Now I saw that this was because she felt safer on a plane where any divergence from the code would be thought impossible. She was incurably dishonest. She wasn't able to endure being at a disadvantage and, given this unwillingness, I suppose she had begun dealing in subterfuges when she was very young in order to keep that cool, insolent smile turned to the world and yet satisfy the demands of her hard, jaunty body. It made no difference to me. Dishonesty in a woman is a thing you never blame deeply. I was casually sorry, and then I forgot. 
It was on that same house party that we had a curious conversation about driving a car. It started because she passed so close to some workmen that our fender flicked the button on one man's coat. You're a rotten driver, I protested. Either you ought to be more careful, or you shouldn't drive at all. I am careful. No, you're not. Well, other people are, she said lightly. And what's that got to do with it? They'll keep out of my way, she insisted. It takes two to make an accident. I suppose you've never met anybody just as careless of yourself. And I hope I never will, she answered. I hate careless people. That's why I like you. Her grey, sun-streamed eyes stared straight ahead. But she had deliberately shifted our relations. And for a moment I thought I loved her. But I am slow thinking, and full of interior rules that act as brakes on my desires. I knew that at first I had to get myself definitely out of that tangle back home. I'd been writing letters once a week and signing them love, Nick. And all I could think of was how, when that certain girl played tennis, a faint moustache of perspiration appeared on her upper lip. Nevertheless, there was a vague understanding that had to be tactfully broken off before I was free. Everyone suspects himself of at least one of the cardinal virtues, and this is mine. I am one of the few honest people that I have ever known. That is where I must leave our story this evening, my friend. The stand cough has determined to silence me, so I will compromise by sleeping instead. I hope you've enjoyed the story this evening, and I hope you sleep well when you get there. You deserve that. Thank you.